hold on. Can, can you hear my children from downstairs? How how audible it's is that? It's very slightly audible, but it's charming. People people like yeah, hearing Joel's children. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, if they if they in fact draw blood, I may have to go downstairs. But assuming that they don't, hello and welcome back. This is another episode of the Josiah's podcast. Uh, with me are my co-hosts Elliot and Potter. How are you? Doing well, thank you, Joel. I'm kind of on the brink of despair because I was sick for a long time. Then I, w- I got better for a few days, and I'm sick again. Oh. <laughs> it's the usual procedure oh, with dear. me. <laughs> uh, so Elliot and I. Uh, both in different places went to a concert, a, a harpsichord concert, which you heard some of just now. Uh, Jean Rondeau, a, a somewhat controversial but I th- well-regarded harpsichordist. I think he's brilliant. And what he's playing was the uh, famous Bach Chacon, which is you know one of the greatest works ever written, in my opinion. But he's playing it on the harpsichord. It's, of course, originally a solo violin piece. And he's playing a version written by, or an arrangement rather, written by Brahms. A transcription. Uh, for left hand only. Yes, yes. Uh, he is playing it with two hands. Uh, as he explained, there's no sustain pedal on the harpsichord. And I find this really interesting because it's sort of, uh, it's almost recursive and it's... Uh, it's very interesting also, and this is maybe why he's, he's sometimes a little bit controversial, because uh, the, the very uh, rigid and uh, uptight harpsichord crowd who want everything to be as authentic and possible, well, here he is playing very authentically and all this, but then he's playing a piece by Bach. Well, that's great, but arranged by Brahms? <laughs> it works. I mean... It works, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I think this was... Part of part of Brahms's project, Brahms was more of a, a classical revivalist, as I understand it. I mean, despite being yes. a late late German Romantic uh, composer, it's a. I mean, it's a gorgeous piece. But why did why did you choose it for today, Joel? Well, I, I was looking for something that would be sort of recursive and and vaguely fugal. And this isn't technically a fugue, but it it. Uh, it's not really Bach recursive. Can't help but always remind one. <laughs> it's a little bit. It's a, it's it's a variations on themes yeah, that yeah, come back in. Sure. Uh, and I was also looking for something that was kind of absurd and falling almost into self-parody. And so at first I was thinking, oh well, we we should get something late, maybe Prokofiev, because he always does irony and 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 sarcasm and and disgust well. Uh, but then I uh, I started thinking about the Bach Busoni, and then I decided that this one because Elliot and I had just seen it, uh, and the Bach Busoni, if you don't know, is uh, this late Romantic virtuosic uh, piece for the piano that's also the Chaconne, but instead of uh, so Brahms actually ends up sticking very close to Bach because he's playing only with the left hand. Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's almost closer a perfect... to what you're doing on the. Uh, recreation yeah. of, of what, what was it? Rondo said something about how uh, the Brahms' goal was to recreate in the left hand of the pianist the experience that the violinist has in his own left the hand. The struggle that the violin yeah. has to play, because this is a very hard piece to play on violin because you are playing on solo violin, you're playing counterpoint and all these chords. I mean, some of it's implied counterpoint, but you're playing all these chords on the violin, which is not an easy thing to do. It's very hard. Uh, 
So the pianist playing it on the left hand, it creates some of that struggle again, and you can't. Uh, but Busoni does the opposite. He goes like I think at one point instead of uh, instead of being on one stave, he's got like four staves, and it's just this over the top, kind of absurd, but but delightfully so piece. We'll we'll link it in the uh, description. But uh, uh, that was kind of what I was thinking. What about you, Elliot? Yeah, I'm. I think you 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 captured most of it. The uh, art. Well, I, I don't want to inter- introduce our theme today, but I'll say indirectly that uh, um, part of the idea <clears throat> of today's topic is um, the nature of uh, variations on uh, intellectual themes and the way that they uh, can manifest a sort of uh, an ideal reality that never actually exists. Um and what what to do with that or that's never actually manifested materially so you know what is the the core underlying theme of the chacon well i'm uh, probably in music theory there's a very good representation of that but um supposing that there wasn't you know that that it's some sort of mystical implied reality um none of the variations would be more appropriate as an expression than any of the others and so that that coherence of the entire piece uh, around this set of family resemblances between each of the sets of uh, of variations um, gives you uh, a kind of metaphysical picture of this thing that's implied Um, so, so stopping real yeah. quick, maybe this is a good transition because I don't think we've actually told our listeners what is the theme for today, and, <laughs> and why. Once we say what the theme is, why would we ever? <laughs> I would be interested yes. in this theme. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes we do what? What do we call it? Uh, basic concepts. This is kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> well, we have a, we have a series on the Josias that's. Uh, Sadly, not very expensive <laughs> series yet, but it's a series called Egyptian Gold. Right. This fits yes. more into that. Yes, this is more of that, yeah. So what is what is today's theme? Today's theme is... What are is we talking about? Jacques Derrida, the uh, <laughs> French philosopher who in America is known as a post-structuralist philosopher, although he never actually used that expression of himself. Did any of them? I think this is a, a universal theme among post-structuralists. They all hate it. <laughs> yeah. So why why should we care about Derrida? Well, uh, personally, I don't really care about Derrida. <laughs> so so uh, I read a, a, a good chunk of, of Derrida's uh, essays and interviews and uh, bits of his books in college. And it's all very fun. Uh, it's kind of like doing a crossword with uh, 19th and 20th century European philosophy, where it's um, oh, can can you can you trace down all of these references, and do you know what theorist he's using here and why, and have you read this essay by so and so? But the nice thing about this essay, uh, in particular, the one we're talking about, which is from Writing Indifference, uh, which <clears throat> is what I like best from Derrida. It's it's a collection of I think about a dozen articles. Uh, so we're we're talking about structure, sign, and play in the discourse of the human sciences. Um, and the nice thing about this one is that it ties together a lot of uh, themes, I guess, in the the history of 
um, post-enlightenment philosophy, um, which is kind of coming to a point of total self-dissolution in Derrida himself. Uh, and he's aware of this, and he's kind of uh, hip to it and, and delighted about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great. But um, so Derrida is a nice tool to introduce some themes in the in the self-demolition of post-enlightenment European thought, I guess. Right. And when we when we were talking about this, we were we were initially just talking about maybe we should do something 20th century. And, you know, because there's a lot of people who are how do you respond to some of the the philosophical points that have come up then? It was actually Potter who said, well, we should talk about Derrida. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why did you say that, Potter? Why were you (laughs) interested in Derrida? (laughs) Well, for a wholly accidental reason, it probably would have been made more sense to Heidegger because he's he's the, the most famous and the one that most people respond to. But I happened to have written a section on Derrida in my dissertation, which is on an, an American novelist named David Foster Wallace who was very interested in Derrida. But I do think it's there's value to discussing these writers um, because people who uh, are formed in, in their work, they would tend to dismiss the kind of approach... Uh, to things that we take at the Josias, the kind of realist metaphysical approach, um, objective view of the good and so on, uh, and, and dismiss it as, as kind of uh, violent metaphysical thinking that uh, it has to be overcome. Yeah, and the opposite of that is also true, that um, people, I, I would say in general, people who are formed along the lines of the Josias or... I mean that's a very small group, but uh, <laughs> there are dozens of us. <laughs> People who are formed, at least as as uh, uh, realists of some variety, are you know Thomists. Thomists, at least, is a larger is a larger group in in the world. Um, would tend to dismiss uh, these post structuralists as uh, worthless, which you know there's there's something to that, but. Uh, there's there's also something useful to be gained in understanding how to think alongside them, um, at least just in terms of being able to respond, like Joel said, and, and criticize and, you know, have uh, conversations with people. So, right, and it helps you clarify your own thoughts, too, to respond to yeah. um, their work, to see, because in defending in defending a realist position, you have to think more carefully about what exactly it means. And why it's not violent and irrational the way they think. Right. So maybe we'll maybe we'll just start there. I mean, there's there's a couple of different starting points we could we could talk about what what it means to be a structuralist since they are post structuralists or maybe they're not. Uh, we could talk about what what we mean by anti metaphysical uh, since Derrida himself at various points seems to suggest that you everyone is metaphysical necessarily he's metaphysical how can you call him anti-metaphysical uh and in other places is very clearly anti-metaphysical <laughs> and then uh but maybe maybe this term violence maybe since we just sort of landed there uh what are you talking about violence metaphysics is violent i you know can't think of a more staid uh <laughs> bookish <laughs> thing to do well, one, one way of understanding uh, the idea of metaphysics as violence is to see it as a hierarchical structure. In metaphysics, you, you're thinking about reality and you give certain 
terms which you think correspond to realities, uh, a kind of privileged position, and understand others uh, by opposition to those terms. So you have a structure of thought that is hierarchical in the sense of being ranked uh, by importance. And uh, one way of seeing the idea of metaphysics as, as violence is to see that as kind of an, uh, an imposition of power that privileges those who have power and silences those who don't. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, um, uh, to, to extend the analogy and make it political, if you think about different ways of organizing states, uh, you might have a, an ideal of uh, anarchism where there are no uh, vertical power structures. Um, and in this, in this case, so the, the philosophical parallel would be that everyone just has their own ideas about things and there's no real communication. Um, but in a, in a monarchic state, say, uh, every expression of political power is somehow associated uh, to the king, right? So similarly, oh, in, in Enlightenment philosophy, for sure, there's this ideal of the reduction of all concepts and intellectual principles uh, to unity under a single concept and a single principle, um, or at least a, a minimal number. And so there's this sense that every intellectual truth needs to be subsumed under the systematic um, so like in Hegel, um, this is the function of, of the absolute and history. Um, in Kant, uh, the idea of, well, there are a few key ideas, but maybe the idea of co cognition is, is core or the idea of uh, representation um, becomes the sort of master concept. Um, and then if you go back further in Plato, it's, it's the form of the good. Um, and in Aristotle, it might be substance. Uh, and so in every intellectual system, uh, if you stick to the, the core of the system, anything that you encounter as a systematician has to be reconciled to that core principle, which means that nothing that's structurally uh, in disagreement with that principle will be allowed to survive uh, contact with it. So... Uh, it's there's a kind of uh, colonialist uh, attitude here, where, right. <laughs> right? Where uh, where um, contact brings the erasure of what is fundamentally different, and that's that's why it's that's why metaphysics is seen as violent because every metaphysics involves uh, some primary carrier of being, um, you know, primary substances or or god or whatever um so yeah i think derrida is also influenced by Jacques. uh sorry by emmanuel levinas who was i think his teacher is that right potter uh, i don't think he was directly his teacher okay. but they were active at the same time and he read levinas was older than him and so okay. more experienced he read levinas's stuff and he wrote a, a one of derrida's earliest works is a review of a book by levinas where he kind of both praises and blames him Maybe we can uh, back up just a little bit. The idea here, I think, being really... Uh, well, what I want to talk about is what's the, what is the sort of intellectual genealogy a little more? Let's get a little more concrete there. So uh, in your dissertation, 
uh, and I guess this is what David Foster Wallace does, he sort of opposes two groups of people. He opposes uh, Wittgenstein on the one hand and Derrida on the other. And then you also see in this, this essay that Derrida himself is talking a little bit about uh, both the structuralists and what you might call the atomists. And uh, maybe we can go through that. Potter, what, what are these groups? Two or three, depending on how you divide it. Yeah. So the first group, which Derrida sort of, in, in the first group, Derrida groups most of previous philosophy. But I would say it really it fits only um, philosophy after Descartes. Uh, right. Has a, Descartes has an idea of, of uh, signification that you get in other, that will then be followed by other modern philosophers as well, where signification is seen as um, a kind of one, one-to-one one correspondence between uh, a concept and a thing, the thing being conceived of as being separate from other things. So it's atomistic in the sense that you have these separate little bundles of substance, and you name them with these separate names, and meaning is the correspondence of the name to the thing. This is You get this in, in early Wittgenstein in the Tractatus in a, in a very strange form, but not in later Wittgenstein, where Wittgenstein then decides that it doesn't make any sense, because you, there's no way of then checking whether the the name actually fits the thing. Mm-hmm. So that would that would be the atomist idea. Although I, I think so don't some people claim that it isn't in fact you uh, some people who agree with you that you can't lump all of previous philosophy before the the structuralists come along into this camp. Don't some of them think that? Uh, uh, it really begins a little bit earlier with the late medieval mo- nominalists. Yeah, yeah, a, ca- a case could be made for that. There, there's some anticipations What's... in Occam, for example, but the full, the the, the full uh, working out is not until Descartes. And what's the so so? Uh... Derrida is sort of opposed to this, but but there's another group of people that's opposed to this is what I meant by two or three. Right. So the right. other group is the structuralists. Exactly. And here, a figure who's really important for Derrida is, is Saussure, uh, Ferdinand Saussure. Swiss. I'm very glad that you said that name first. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how to pronounce it. I'm just guessing. I don't, he, he I don't was, actually speak French. Swiss French. So who knows? Yeah, Swiss French. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll just claim it's a Swiss French pronunciation. So, so, so say more is, about this fellow. He's a, so is a linguist, um, and he his theory of, of signification is that uh, signification is um, arbitrary and differential. And by arbitrary, he means there's kind of this this chaotic mass of reality or, or what we think of as reality. And then there's this chaotic mass of our, the sounds that we make with our mouth, as it were. And then we, we arbitrarily take a, f- a section of our sounds and apply it to an arbitrary section of reality. And he sort of has an anthropological or, 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 or uh, justification for it being arbitrary because different languages, right? Uh, this Car is the things, mutton, yeah, exactly. mutton sheep example. Some languages divide uh, well, sheep yeah. flesh that you're eating. That, I mean, that, well, maybe I'm being that, imprecise. It, yeah, well, <laughs> it, I mean, I think the the point. So in 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 Saucer, he, he has this classic example of how in English, uh, mutton is the word used for 
sheep meat that you're about to eat. And sheep is the name of the animal. But in French, mouton is just a sheep, right? Um, right. So he uses this to, to explain two things. Um, how historical development in language happens uh, by the drawing of a distinction between uh, two right. different uh, sort of semantic encounters with things. So the, the argument here being that after the Norman Conquest... Uh, the people who saw the meat of a, of a sheep were speaking French, and so they referred to it by the French word, and the people who actually raised the sheep were uh, Saxons or whatever, uh, and so they were still speaking their old Germanic language. And so in, in the English that developed out of the union of the two of these, those words uh, were distinguished because of the class difference. And so that's a that's a what he would call a, a diachronic uh, analysis of uh, English vocabulary, I guess. Um, yeah. So what's what's cool about structuralism is that for things like that, it's it's actually really useful. Um, you can you can explain a lot in terms of uh, the development of concepts by uh, what they're opposed to, particularly in different social contexts. Uh, or intellectual context. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Saussure, structuralism is uh, really outdated in linguistics. No one is actually a structuralist, as far as I know, anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's old hat, but it really took off in the human sciences generally. Um, so it became the, the faddish uh, philosophical discipline especially in uh, literary criticism and then most of all in anthropology uh, where right. there are a bunch but of to, really like prominent right. 20th century probably the most prominent anthropologists were uh, heavily influenced by Saucer. Right but also what's going on there right is that uh, he's pointing out that that you it's not as if there was a natural way in which the concepts go one-to-one to with words it's not as if you know yeah sure there's an arbitrariness of whether we use the sound mutton or sheep to refer to this concept also the concepts themselves are being uh, uh tranched up or divided differently so exactly. in french exactly. you have one word and one concept for both sheep that you're eating and sheep that's out there on the field uh you know uh uh grazing yeah in English, you have two different concepts and words, mm -hmm. so there's a double arbitrariness that he's that's right. Yeah. To so out. although on, on Saussure's account, the the Socratic attempt to define things is uh, misconceived because Socrates takes it that there are these things um, in reality, and the the purpose of defining is to figure out what they are. But Saussure is saying that's not what you do at all. What you do is you divide reality up by uh, making these concepts. Reality in right. itself is undifferentiated, but you, by imposing concepts, snip it up into sheep and fields and trees and, and so on. so then you also have to look at the differences. Elliot is... I mean, I guess I've had this argument before. I think that um, it's... This is this is a little bit too uh, inside baseball-y, maybe, but... 
It's it's very <laughs> tempting because the only reason people read Saussure today is to understand structuralism as it, it came after. It's it's right. very easy to read um, people like uh, Bart or uh, Levi Strauss or Derrida into Saussure, and I, I don't think uh, that he was actually a, a hardcore nominalist of that sort. I mean, uh, it it doesn't it never seems like he would have denied the reality of of natures or uh, have reduced the the universe to a sort of indistinguishable chaotic uh, mass. You know, it's where these yeah. later well, that, people that may be, but he does he does do that with with thought. Let me let me read you sure. just one little quote from Saussure. So it might be true that he would, because of prejudice, not follow his uh, premises to their logical conclusion. But this is what he says about human thought, which uh, other structures will then just apply to reality itself. Psychologically, our thought, apart from its expression in words, is only a shapeless and indistinct mass. Philosophers and linguists have always agreed in recognizing that without the help of signs, we would be unable to make a clear-cut, consistent distinction between two ideas. Without language, thought is a vague, uncharted nebula. Right. That's so, kind of a Thomistic thought, can, though, think, isn't it? <laughs> well, it depends, well, how, depends how you read it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, what's funny to me is both things like that, and then on the other side, things like the atomists. There's a certain sense, if you, if you read it, your first thought is, oh, okay. And uh, uh, it, you don't, at least for me, you don't necessarily, when you first encounter them, initially... Uh, see uh, just how different they are from, say, Thomism, although they're very different from each other, which is maybe a sign of that. But let's continue. Well, we can bracket just <laughs> the, the historical yeah, question yeah. a little bit here and say that this is sort of how Derrida at least makes use of him. Uh, so that's sort of the structuralist group. But then uh, Derrida himself turns their own tools against them. And what does he... How does that work? Well, so, um, I mean, I, I should say, I, just to be the contrarian, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not sure entirely that, that um, like, logical atomism is the, is the proper opposite group to structuralism. I, they were happening okay. at the same time, but there were a lot of other things that were happening at the same time. So just to throw that out there. Um, uh, so, but the I, I think the important thing to know with with Derrida is that there's a there's a trajectory uh, coming out of Susser um, through mostly French uh, theorists uh, in the early 20th century um, to take this idea of the arbitrariness of uh, the distinction between different concepts uh, in this sort of chaotic mass of thought. Um, and use it as a, a, a means of analyzing intellectual systems. Um, so the probably the most influential people uh, in this regard are um, uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, who's a, a seminal uh, ethnologist and anthropologist. He went to South America and did all of these studies on um, primitive uh, South American tribal groups. Uh, and their religious practices and their view of the world. And then the other one is probably um, Roland Barthes, who was a French literary critic and essayist. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so th these these guys uh, take this idea and uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the violence of metaphysics, right? So the problem with metaphysics um, coming out of the Enlightenment is is its uh, impulse to subsume everything, or this is one way of looking at it. And so when you get to Nietzsche, uh, the uh, the there's a revolt against metaphysics as such so a lot of you know it, there's too much to be said about all of this stuff by far right uh but uh the nietzschean um uh, ideal is to completely throw away plato and the, the whole unity of being and to be satisfied with a kind of sense of sensible Dionysian chaos underlying everything. Um, and so he initiates this, this project of uh, an, an anti-metaphysical or non-metaphysical uh, philosophical disposition, which then gets taken up by Heidegger. And that's part of a, a totally different intellectual movement, um, independent from, from the atomism and the structuralism that we've been talking about. But they get linked up. Uh, which is important for Derrida, the, in that um, the goal of abandoning metaphysics philosophically and the tool of structuralism as a metaphysically agnostic analytic tool um, uh, come together and enable you to do radical, uh, like basically philosophical analyses of the world without actually making any transcendental claims about what things are, right? So you can say that, oh, well, in the tribal system of Christianity, uh, you know, God plays this, this role as a signifier and uh, exists in, in relationship with these other roles, or you, can, you could analyze the, the theology of the Trinity by means of uh, conceptual distinctions and tensions within these concepts that are used by Christian theologians. And it's all very um, uh, clean of uh, actual metaphysical assertions. You don't need to say whether it's true or false. You bracket the facts and you can, you can do your analysis in a sort of purely distant, um, rational way. Or that's the idea. But... Doesn't Derrida, I mean, this is where I was mm -hmm. going, doesn't uh, Derrida, who I've read uh, 20 pages of <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, spent all of a week thinking about, uh, doesn't he end up critiquing the idea that you can be uh, uh, non-objective? Isn't that why he's called a post-structuralist? So the idea is that he, uh, so you have this, this idea that you can look at these different cultures and not make any truth claims about them. But Derrida, doesn't he look at them and say that, uh, in fact, uh, they haven't escaped? They think they've escaped, but they haven't. So this is where, where Terry Eagleton uh, says something like, uh, if structuralism divided the, pi the sign from the referent, Post-structuralism divides the signifier from the signified. Maybe maybe Potter can can elucidate that for us, but I think that's what I'm driving at. 
Well, I can say what I think it means. Elliot will probably have a okay. different, yeah. <laughs> different interpretation, <laughs> which is usual when you're reading these kinds yeah, of people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so to the first thing, before getting to, to the Eagleton quote, I think you're right about what uh, Derrida is saying, that, that all these people who, who claim to be abandoning metaphysics, they're all still implicated in it. Even right. the the words they use to abandon it are implicated in in metaphysical structures. Right, and but the, then he says, sorry. "Yeah, go well, there, there's no, there's a good tradition of that. You know, Kant is is not doing metaphysics in the critique of pure reason. Right, right? Uh, he's critiquing the metaphysicians, and then um, you know Nietzsche is not doing metaphysics." Yeah. And then Heidegger says Nietzsche that, shows how Kant was really doing right, metaphysics, right. and that he Nietzsche is not. Heidegger doing calls Nietzsche Heidegger the last how, metaphysician. Hey, Nietzsche, and, you know, they're they're all doing this to each other, so it's a long-standing thing. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, it's a long exactly. It's a long-standing thing, and and Derrida says there is no end to this long-standing thing. There's no way of escaping it. So even 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 I, Jacques even Derrida. I Jacques who recognized you know that that there is no metaphysics, nevertheless, whenever I open my mouth, I'm a metaphysician. Right. Um, <laughs> And then, then he'll say, look, if you look at the structures that the structuralists talk about, and in this paper he uses Levi-Strauss especially, um, you can see how uh, they kind of, the structure uh, doesn't give you the kind of uh, meaning that, um, it, that you thought you could get. I mean, looking at what we said with Saussure, where he says meaning doesn't come from correspondence but from difference, within a structure of language. And, and Strauss uh, extends that from language to all kinds of, of human uh, culture and so on. So that you have this structure, and that's what gives meaning to the, the individual parts. But um, Derrida will say, well, the structure uh, itself isn't really able to give meaning because you never come to an end. There's no fixed place in the structure. So if I want to know what is a sheep, I can look at the difference of sheep to other concepts in the structure, but then the meaning is just deferred. I can then look at those concepts, they refer to other concepts, and I'll never get to the end. There's no center of the structure. There's no right. fixed point that can give meaning to the whole thing. Right. Not just and because so the structure the, is this endless play. Not just because the, the concepts are limitless, but also because people are always speaking. Right, and so the right. the set of available right. terms is actually changing, right. and the distinctions are are moving all the time. So that yeah, go on. So this play. Yeah, exactly. And so what what people even what the same person means by the same word will change, because you know people are they, they say it first sincerely and then ironically, and then the ironic meaning takes the primary, and and you know language is constantly in flux and developing as we all know. He, he reminds me. I mean, and, and this is from someone who. Uh, you were talking about the, the, the Thomist who is very ignorant of uh, all of this stuff. Well, that's me if I could be called a Thomist uh, to the extent that I am. I am certainly, however, very ignorant of all this stuff. But what this reminded me of was like of like a more honest version of Hegel, where like Hegel has this idea of like Hegel's kind of like uh, uh, Heraclitian. He, you know, he has change and he, he's denying uh you know, that being is and cannot not be. But then he has this idea of, you know, the world spirit and that we're going to get sublation and, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and whether or not you agree with those terms for describing him, you know, that's the sort of idea that people took from him. Whereas here, 
it's no, no, there's there's no thesis, synthesis, antithesis. Get rid of that. <laughs> you, you just have being flowing. Everything's flowing. So you can't really say. But you don't have you, being. All you have is play. <laughs> you don't have being, that's, right? That's but see, really I'm opening important. my mouth and I'm becoming I'm becoming a metaphysician. <laughs> Definitely. There's, but, uh, you, there is no. So it's the much, fun thing, of, the reason I don't take Derrida seriously ultimately is that ultimately it's just a game. I mean, he admits at the very end of this essay that the the opposition between metaphysics and the realization of which is what what Potter just pointed out that if you're a if you're a structuralist of any sort and you believe in uh, meaning in this way that basically meaning is impossible and there's always this free play of significations um, the the there's a contradiction between those two attitudes and he he seems to say that we're stuck in both of them that we can have our fun day as as structuralist analysts of meaning uh, and be nihilists, uh, but then as soon as we start talking again in a normal way, we're metaphysicians again. And yeah. so, like, what what do you do with that? Well, he he claims that he, we're witnessing the genesis of a new form of thought or something like that, which is so like pompous and Heideggerian and in, in the, the most European way, <laughs> forgive me, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. And, but, and what's come after has not mm-hmm. really, uh, indicated well, that there was some new thing, uh, you know, being birthed to the world. Yeah. Well, here's, I, I think it here's really one, is. And it's one, also, it's, let me, I, I well, just, let me play devil's okay, advocate okay. here, Joel, before you agree with Elliot. <laughs> Because <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I agree with you, but I'm going to disagree with you now for the sake of argument. <laughs> that in other works of Derrida, you see that there is a serious motivation behind this. It's he's not just playing around, and the serious motivation is, as you were indicating earlier, has to do with something similar to Levinas's project. Namely, it's an ethical motivation. The idea is, um, we human beings, whenever we uh, interact with others, we're always uh, doing bad stuff to them. We're oppressing them. We're exercising our power on them. Um, we are replacing their reality with our our concepts and, and making them conform to our concepts and so on. And becoming aware of that um, is deeply important to living a good human life because when you become aware of that, then you become more able to to leave the other in his otherness and not um, not destroy him and, and replace him with your concepts and not you know yeah. impose yeah, your yeah. power on him. So that is where I wanted to go next was like this ethical side that he has that maybe you know the there's uh, the different uh, interpreters of Derrida. Uh, some of them were more interested than others, but. The first thing was just uh, speaking of the pomposity of Europeans and European philosophers. Uh, I think the the best example of this was Hegel once again, who, who Derrida kind of reminds me of. Uh, famously gave, I think it was the, his inaugural lecture uh, was on uh, the the kingdom of God is at hand, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> and really, and how Hegel interpreted that is, I Hegel have arrived. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> My thought is is you know we have now become God. Uh, gosh. 
wow. It's it's amusing, but it's also very evil. Uh, yeah, yeah. Derrida at least isn't. He's not quite that self self absorbed. No. Right. He- That's more it's of a hard German thing. To compete with specifically. Hegel. Yeah, in terms of. <laughs> I mean, it's it's more of a Prussian um, thing, maybe to go even yeah. further. But let's talk about the the ethical side of Derrida, because you can you can kind of see how you could use this ethically. But uh, since I know so little about this, uh, let's let's hear from from you you guys. What what's this ethical side of Derrida, and what what is he what is his project there, and and how did people take him? Uh, Potter, you go first. I, don't, I go first. <laughs> I don't know anything about Derrida and ethics, honestly. So I'll, I'll listen. Well, you lived among Derridians, <laughs> but, in a way that but I it was did. always in the context of, uh, of epistemology. <laughs> and um, yeah, but how did they live ethically? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there you go. It's, it's out of the question. No one. But no, there's definitely a lot of stuff about ethics. Uh, I. But I, I haven't read it, I guess. So, illuminate us. Um, okay. I'm looking in my notes for a, a nice quote to kind of lead into mm-hmm. this idea. So, this is, this is from another uh, early work of, of Derrida's on grammatology. And um, in, in this work, he says... Uh, it's about the difference between writing and speech and how in, uh, in ancient philosophy you have this opposition that you see very clearly in, in Plato's Phaedrus where speech uh, is, gives a kind of immediate contact with reality. The spoken word um, is a, in a way the thing that is spoken but just in a different mode. Um, whereas writing is kind of a, a replacement for speech, and so it kind of separates you from the reality that it's talking about. At least this is how Derrida interprets Plato at that point. Um, and then he says, Derrida says, the, the idea of the book, which always refers to a natural totality, is profoundly alien to the sense of writing. It is the encyclopedic protection of theology and of logocentrism against the disruption of writing, against its aphoristic energy, and as I shall specify later, against difference in general. If I distinguish the text from the book, I shall say that the destruction of the book, as it is now underway in all domains, denudes the surface of the text. That necessary violence responds to a violence which was no less necessary. And okay, I will say, however, just right. <laughs> when I was looking at that quote earlier, uh, that was one of the things that made me think that uh, using a transcription of particularly of Bach, who's so, you know, uh, everyone wants pure Bach and then having a, a romantic transcription of Bach sort of made me think about like uh, the text and how you could, you know, play with it possibly distort it but maybe there's no way to have a pure performance yeah. maybe there's nothing it's just a meme maybe you can't ever everything yeah. is a meme <laughs> well I, but I, I want to hear Potter's <laughs> right. uh, interpretation yes, uh, sorry for interrupting I think no no it's good. it's well it just strikes me off immediately that it's it's a he's he's right I mean his prediction was true because of internet culture um, because the text uh, is this very what polymorphic 
reality nowadays. Things are constantly being copied and pasted and transformed, and authorial attribution is always in question. And um, so there's this uh, indeterminate free-floatingness about the written expression that's very... Uh, it's it's in sharp distinction from the tradition since the Reformation of editions, which are printed and authoritative right. and fixed, you know, and uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, and that's and it's that fixity that he sees as violent. So the violence of the the internet meme culture that is constantly disrupting and changing the text and and making fun of it and so on. That is a response to the previous violence, which was the imposition of this one meaning on everything. So there's something liberating about memes because well, <laughs> we get into quickly devolve into the ridiculous here. But <laughs> this is this is basically the thought. And um, in my dissertation, what I argue is that actually following a guy called Joshua Cates, who wrote the most intelligible book on Derrida that. I've ever read the only intelligible book on Derrida I've ever read. <laughs> he was a uh, St. John's College graduate, so uh, he uh, Cates he argues that Derrida's critique makes sense um, in the light of uh, a very influential figure at St. John's. How could it be otherwise? Jacob Klein. Mm -hmm. Jacob Klein was a, a philosopher who, who taught for or tutored for many many years at, at St. John's. And Klein's uh, thesis was that in modern philosophy, um, you have a, a, re, uh, a reconceptualization of how thinking and signification work. And this uh, change, conceptual change, is take, takes place above all in Descartes' uh, transformation of mathematics. Mm. Um, and the idea is that in in perennial philosophy, in Plato and in Aristotle, you do have uh, the idea that we, as intellectual creatures, we are kind of totally open to reality, and we're sort of suffused with um, this contact with reality. And that is something that's very indistinct and confused, but it's something that's very certain. I mean... Uh, Aristotle talks about this. Forms are actually the of the impressing themselves on us. Forms are actually impressing themselves on us, right? And um, the our our thought remains faithful to to reality uh, when we continually attend to that original um, experience of the things around us, and we can clarify the confused notions through definition and through argument. But we should never uh, mistake our definitions of the things for uh, our original contact with yeah. them. So we have to constantly be comparing our conceptual development of those concepts with the original experience, the common experience that we have. And that common experience is, to some extent, expressed in uh, human speech, um, in the speech that through which we communicate to each other. But there's a kind of danger here that gets uh that in especially in in scientific 
work and Klein shows this especially for mathematics but it's it's true everywhere and in fact Klein was a, a student of uh, um, what's his name the phenomenologist Heidegger no Husserl. well also Heidegger Husserl yeah he was oh I didn't know he was a student of Husserl he was he well he heard I mean he went he attended Husserl's lectures oh, and wow. Heidegger's okay. lectures he, he must didn't, have his been old dissertation I didn't was directed by someone else <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> but Husserl talks about says something similar with regard to all areas of knowledge. That there's something called sedimentation that he talks about, where the uh, our original contact with reality is replaced by these technical concepts which lose all meaning. They become um, like cliches that don't mean anything anymore, and everything is built on there, on them. And then thought becomes this kind of system of of cliches that's not in contact with reality anymore. And so Cates uh, argues, I think, very convincingly that this is what happens in modern philosophy, and it is what Derrida is uh, is showing in his work and making fun of and, and criticizing, but at the same time saying there's no way out. But that Derrida's critique doesn't really hold if you if you apply it to um, to perennial philosophy. And I found uh, this beautiful essay, which was by sheer luck I found this uh, by a friend of Derrida's this was this is the only, I mean the section on Derrida in my dissertation is probably not very good or very uh, original but there's this one part that I'm proud of because by by uh, sheer luck I found this interesting thing this is uh, Michel Serres who's or I have no idea how to pronounce his name but anyway he was a friend of Derrida's they were students together in Paris and Serres wrote this uh, this essay on a fable. It's the fable of the the wolf and the lamb. The wolf is standing in a stream, and the lamb goes to drink from the stream downstream from the wolf. And the wolf says, um, "You're muddying the water." And the lamb says, "It's impossible. You're you are you know above stream for me." But uh, the the wolf doesn't accept the excuse and kills the lamb. And then Sarah says, "The." <laughs> The reason the reason of the stronger is always right, mm. and uh, the idea is that all these conceptual systems of science and philosophy and so on, it's always the imposition of um, the the reason of the stronger uh, on the weaker. And then let me let me read you this one quote from Sarah's, <laughs> the algebra of literature. This essay is called. Oh, gosh. <laughs> This is actually from a different work by him. Mastery and possession. These are the master words launched by Descartes at the dawn of the scientific and technological age, when our Western reason went to conquer the universe. We dominate and appropriate it, such as the shared philosophy underlying industrial enterprise, as well as so-called disinterested science, which are indistinguishable in this respect. Cartesian mastery brings science's objective violence into line, making it a well-controlled strategy. This is, that I think is, is true about this, this Cartesian yeah. project of the domination of nature. And if you read, if you read like, I mean, it, you, you know, that might sound like fanciful, like how could you say that? But if you read like Bacon, it's quite clear uh, uh, Francis Bacon has replaced trying to know the truth and metaphysics with dominating nature. What's, what's yeah. uh, his project, I don't know, the, which is in a sense the scientific project. I mean, every everyone. So yeah, this is the hold real. On, hold on, everyone. Everyone always talks about bacon, and um, sure, okay, 
Bacon Bacon said that, but is that really the the dominant ethos in the development of the the physical sciences for the the next four or five hundred years? I mean, yeah, on and putting, off, it's putting it's putting nature on the stand. Is it? It isn't I, that I, I just, making her. I just call into question whether whether there's this same spirit of uh, pragmatistic aggression. Like I don't think that Leibniz and Newton were being motivated by a desire to, you know, build mines or something like that, or um, you know, mill textiles or who knows. It's I. Sure, sure. There, there's so a individual scientists though, with are Leibniz, motivated though, by the love of the truth. Yeah, uh, they, I think that among other things. Yeah, they they were after the truth. research the of Leibniz. The, the way though. that science is uh, is set up, the whole methods and uh, and so on, that is is ordered to technological progress, and that's what yeah. The, and the you even see it in, in Newton judge. and Leibniz's own lives. Their research projects were often, in fact, dominated by the various technical challenges like how to set the masts in a new way. I think that was either Leibniz or uh, Euler. Uh, and, and Newton famously had to work on uh, 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 better ways to mint coins and things like that. And in fact, if you ask the man on the street, you know, why, why do you, re- you know, not that they reject it consciously, but why does modern science show that all this old humbug was false? The answer is more likely to be, well, we know it's true because we put a man on the moon. You know, we know it's true because look at all these things we can do, right? It's uh, the truth is shown. Uh, it's not that they don't that all the scientists don't want truth, but how do you show truth? Uh, you show truth by power having power over, over nature. nature. No. Yeah. This is very. This is very. <laughs> no, no. What the, the man on the street uh, doesn't believe in high metaphysical realities, or or implicitly rejects them because his senses have been dulled by the pre- pleasures of modern life, and because he's been so sheltered uh, by modern technological life that he doesn't need to think about such things. It never even occurs to him. And when it does occur to him, uh, he's got a million propagandists telling him that that's all old hat, and Darwin meant Darwin means that it doesn't, it's not necessary anymore. And so many people on the side of uh, truth um, are, make arguments from gaps in scientific explanations that you know it all fits together very nicely, and clearly this is all just a bunch of humbug. I don't. I don't. I think that. I think that you guys are right. That at some point there was this uh, technological uh, drive, and for sure, most uh, major scientific advances have been motivated in some way by engineering problems um, of some variety. Uh, but I just. Uh, I. I think that. I. I guess the reason I'm. rebelling against the sentiment is that I've heard it so many times in a certain (laughs) group of people or a certain class of people and it who went to a certain college not even I I mean (laughs) I I I was hearing this before I I knew anyone from Thomas Aquinas College it was it's a common theme in intellectual history among traditionalist types uh, that Francis Bacon uh, you know, was out to get the the natural world, and 
man is dominant and so on. And it's true. And that, that's definitely a theme, but it's, I just don't want to reduce uh, 500 years of intellectual pursuit to Francis Bacon. It seems unfair. No, fair enough. I, I mean, there's other things going on, and, and Francis Bacon is more of a symbol rather than every single person explicitly taking up his project, and certainly not in the way that he did it. But I, I do Nevertheless, think... Nevertheless, whenever you <laughs> criticize the modern world, there's sure to be a person who will say, but what about dental hygiene? Do you want to go back to the 13th century before there were good dentists? Yeah, and you're right. And what think, about okay, vaccines? You, you just <laughs> you confirmed all my prejudices. Dysentery? <laughs> Or, contrary, do you want autism for all your kids? Mm. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a very interesting point, though. Because, I mean, the, the, the anti-vax movement is in some ways, I mean, in kind of a, a very distant way, resembles this kind of postmodern in, uh, impulse that you see in Derrida, where there's a kind of a re- reaction against um, what's seen as a totalitarian modernity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me read one more quote from Derrida. <laughs> okay. This is... This expresses then a kind of ethical ideal that he thinks is not really possible, but it has to be attempted anyways. So he says, to surrender to the other, and this is the impossible, would amount to giving oneself over in going toward the other, to coming toward the other, but without crossing the threshold, and to respecting, to loving, even the invisibility that keeps the other inaccessible to give oneself up and to surrender one's weapons without defeat, without memory or plan of war, that this renunciation not be another ruse of seduction or an added stratagem of jealousy, and everything would remain intact. Love, too, a love without jealousy. That's horrific. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like thinking that, um, that authentic... Uh, healthy or how do I even I don't know what word that good communication between people requires uh, the dissolution of all contact effectively because there's no way to do what he's describing there uh, except to annihilate yourself basically Um, you know I walk toward you and become a pile of ashes that you that you never have to deal with because how could I impose myself upon you you know it's I, this is the problem, I think, with with the sort of Levinasian um, ethics of of alterity. So it's just too much. To, to to tie it back to 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 an earlier conversation we had a long time ago on the podcast, uh, you see this idea in parenting these days. Uh, you see, you know, how could I impose? So there was a New York Times column that said something like, "I'm going to paraphrase it," but this was an actual actual column. Uh, uh, you one should never impose one's values on one's children. Rather, you should uh, uh, enable them to take the journey to discover what good and evil mean for them. They didn't use the word evil, I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> and if this means that they're alienated from you, so be it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was an actual, particularly the alienation part. It was in the column, and it was it's horrific. And And what's more... Derrida would be able to say, or using sort of a, what I take to be his his moves, you can look at that and say, you're a hypocrite. You are imposing. You are, by trying not to impose and saying, discover, you know, what's right and wrong by yourself, 
you're imposing a view of right and wrong on your yeah, child. Yeah, I mean, just well, he's, he's, fully, he's fully aware yeah. of that. I mean, that's the thing about Dan. Right, that, there's right, no right, objection right. you can make to him that he hasn't already yeah. thought of before. Yeah, the, <laughs> the problem the is the half-baked <laughs> followers of Derrida who don't, right, who aren't right, that right. so... Like, it's very fun, you know. You read this stuff, and it's, it's all... <laughs> there's a lot of conceptual play going on, and it's cool. But then you meet the, uh, the grad student in... Um, I don't know, literary theory or something, who's gotten the the dogmatized version of Derrida from their professor. And it's terrible because they think that this stuff is, is some sort of law that they have to impose on everything they encounter in life. And they've gained real insight uh, about the world from these uh, deconstructionist theories, uh, which is just wrong. And it's contrary to the spirit of the right. thing, too. Yeah, there's an example of that is parodied by david foster wallace namely uh sort of university campus feminists saying heterosexual intercourse is rape which you know if you take the that quote from derrida it's it's uh, follows pretty <laughs> pretty logically hmm. yeah well <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh yeah so what were we we were talking about the ethics of of alterity and encountering the other um Maybe we should now turn to defending uh, Thomism a little oh, bit. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. How can we ever have contact? How can we well, ever... Well, first, we should... We, ever say we, we spent a lot of time on this essay, in, which really has nothing to do with ethics at all. So why don't we, <laughs> why don't we go back to that? Okay, go, take us back to the essay. So, um, okay, so in in the essay, right, Derrida is, is flirting with this idea that he finds in Claude Lévi-Strauss about uh, a perpetually um, deferred metaphysics, basically. So Lévi-Strauss is this uh, is this anthropologist. He's analyzing the cultures and, and religions and mythologies of uh, South American tribes. And what he witnesses in them is something that he calls bricolage, um, which is the I think the, the French origin uh, of the English word for collage, where you're sticking snippets of things mm -hmm. together in order to form a new picture. Um, so you're, you're taking found stuff exactly. rather than building a system from, you know... Uh, from scratch. Uh, that's in yeah, yeah from as scratch, opposed to painting where you are, you're taking a raw material, a medium, and then creating an image. You have found images, and then you're constructing a new image out of them. And so the idea in Levi-Strauss is that uh, all mythological systems in all cultures are this kind of, they're based on this activity where there's an existing state of society and some transformation takes place which twists or rearranges pre-existing signifiers and pre-existing mythic elements into some new totality so that within every culture you can find traces of an earlier uh, conceptual um, state of affairs or something like that. And so the consequence of this uh, that Derrida points out is that, um, that Levi-Strauss can apply this idea about bricolage to his own activity as an anthropologist, that the, the idea of objectivity in anthropology or the idea of strict rational 
analysis of a culture is itself uh, an arbitrary uh, improvised construct based on found ideas in Western thought and in, in European philosophy. So, which means that what Levi-Strauss is doing in his books isn't somehow over and above the cultures that he's analyzing. It's just another kind of uh, what he calls like a, a mythopoetic or um, maybe he uses mythogenic or some, some you know, Greco neologism uh, construct. So he's just creating his own metaphysics, his own sort of uh, mythological reality. Um, so that's the, that's sort of Derrida's approach. Well, maybe everything that we're doing is just this participation in a, in a fake, uh, arbitrary constructed, um, arrangement of signs and found, uh, concepts. So that's, that's where we were. Yeah. And, and, and the last sentence of maybe can you say a little bit about the last sentence of this essay, which is uh, kind of ominous? Uh, uh, so I, I'm trying to find a way to read it because he's referring to what he's just been talking about, which is, I think, Levi Strauss, if I'm if I'm uh, interpreting it right. So I employ these words, I admit, with a glance. So he's employing words like conception, formation, gestation, and labor. I admit with a glance towards the operations of childbearing, but also with a glance towards those who those who, in a society from which I do not exclude myself, turn their eyes away when faced by the yet, the as yet unnameable, which is proclaiming itself, and which can do so, as is necessary, whenever a birth is in the offing, only under the species of the non-species, in the formless, mute, infant, and terrifying form of monstrosity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what is he saying so, here? Um, I, this, this harkens back to a few things that he said earlier in the essay. Um, but so the key point um, that he brings out at one, at one stage is the idea of um, mana in, uh, in Levi-Strauss, which is... Uh, it's kind of a, a placeholder signifier, or this is how Derrida looks at it, where it means nothing, but it, it indicates uh, a conceptual space within the mythology uh, that possesses the, the term. And so this is, this, this is a kind of leading into uh, Derrida's idea of difference, which which is what Potter was talking about earlier with the, the sort of perpetually deferred shifting signification of terms, right? Um, so anyways, he's, he's winking at us when he talks about the as yet unnameable, which is proclaiming itself. So he's, he's referencing that, but he's also suggesting that there's some sort of new intellectual reality that's coming to be. Uh, and, so that's why, well, it's a monstrosity because what is a monster? A monster is, is like a chimera. It's this fusion of different animal forms, right? It's a bricolage, but a living bricolage. Um, and it's, it's mute because we can't yet express it in language. It, it hasn't yet arrived. And so 
one of the problems that he's discussed is that even if we did express it in language, we would be reducing it to some sort of mythological or metaphysical uh, form. So he, it's almost like a, a negative theology of, of the future philosophy. You know, he's hinting at this, this thing that's about to arrive that we can't, we can't speak of because to speak of it would mean that we're not speaking of the real thing that's about to arrive, you know. And then he's doing it by tying in all of these snappy little uh, conceptual quips or what, that he's just introduced in the previous 20 pages. It's, I mean, this is the best thing about Derrida, that he does stuff like this. It's very fun. It is very fun, yeah. But speaking of infants and, and uh, negative theology, I actually have to go... Uh, meet with some people whose child I'm going to be Oh, wonderful. So, <laughs> <laughs> you can, well, maybe that's the best response. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Wonderful. Thank you both. It was so yep. fun.